Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. And today we have got a bonus episode. We've reached the end of this short summer season about the great 20th century essays and essayists, and we've had lots of questions. We asked for questions, and we got a lot of them. I'm going to try and answer them. Our producer is going to put them to me. So I'm going to hand over to Ben. Hi, I'm Ben Walker, producer of Past, Present, Future, and I'm going to be putting some of your questions to David. We've had lots of questions and lots of comments. Thank you for all of these and sorry that we can't cover everything here. This is just a small selection. We're hoping to do another Q&A episode at some point later in the year. Some of these questions are about particular writers and essays, and some are more general questions about the history of ideas. We'll start with a few of the specific ones. First up, Tom Schuler has a question about Thoreau. He asks, what would you or what would Thoreau say to anti-vaxxers who could use his arguments to justify their opposition to state rulings? So that is a really good question. And I saw it when we put the episode out and uh, I found it, it is a really troubling question. And I thought about it again because in the episode we did about Simone Weil, I said, and I'm not the only person who said this actually about Simone Weil, that she would almost certainly be an anti-vaxxer now. And actually Thoreau, I don't know, but I mean, I presume it's possible he, you know, he belongs to a tradition of American thinking, which is strongly libertarian. He says in that essay, the government that governs best is the one that governs least. And so I'm guessing in a way that there is a justification there for an anti-vax stance. So it's not easy to say, and certainly you can't just say about this kind of politics and civil disobedience that it's only permitted for the people who their conscience takes you the way you think people's consciences should go. Then it becomes a nonsense because the whole point of it is it, you know, Thoreau is saying it is the individual's conscience. So there isn't, there's no straightforward answer here. And there's certainly no way of saying this kind of protest is good and this kind of protest is bad. But in thinking about it, there are some differences. And here are a few, I don't know if they're persuasive. But one is that this tradition of civil disobedience, which is there in Thoreau and, and follows through to people like Gandhi, as I said on the episode, and indeed Martin Luther King, is not about saying that the state has to keep its hands off your body. It's weirdly the opposite of that, in that the civil disobedient person puts their body in the hands of the state. So in the case of Thoreau, it was, you can imprison me. And he was furious when his aunt bailed him out. You know, like, you can take me and lock me up. I'm using my body as the instrument to show that I am rejecting something else about what you're doing. And so it becomes complicated if it's the anti-vax version, because the anti-vaxxer is saying, you can't, you the state can't touch my body, my body is mine. But civil disobedience of this kind does not start from that premise. And it does accept the legitimacy of the state's control over your body. Because the and Gandhi, it's the same. Because the protester says to the state, you know, do your worst with my body, I will let you do your worst with my body in order to signal my objection to something else that you're doing. So I think the message almost by definition would be confused in an anti-vax version of that kind of civil disobedience. I imagine there is a way of doing it. I think it's also true that the criticism that is often made of people who object to vaccines on 
conscientious grounds and make it a great point of principle is that fine you you know it's entirely up to you if you you know if you're Novak Djokovic or whatever and you don't want to put what you think is evil stuff in your body and you want to put whatever weird stuff he puts into his body that's fine but it's not just about you because you might be the bearer of this disease so in the in the covid case the people who weren't vaccinated were not just potentially a threat to themselves but then as the carriers of the disease an unvaccinated person out in the world could cause an enormous amount of harm i think thoreau would still say you know, it is for the individual conscience to decide but there is in thoreau i think another piece that would go along with that which is after all thoreau as well as being the early proponent of this very public form of political protest is also the great champion of solitude and my guess is the anti-vax version of Thoreau would say these things go together. So right, if you don't want to be vaccinated, that's actually fine. But go and live in a hut by a pond for two years as well, because that's the that's the more moral version of it. And I'm not sure that that is part of the anti-vax movement, that it is simultaneously. I mean, it is at the most extreme Thoreau libertarian end, but I'm not sure it is simultaneously don't want the state to get its hands on my body and put its sinister stuff in my body. And I also don't want to see any other human beings for two years. And so there is a case that the Thoreau version is more demanding than maybe many people who would take the anti-vax line would be comfortable with. And then the final thing is this, and you know, this, none of these answers are in any way definitive. I'm really unsure about this question. I think it is a brilliant question. But the examples that I gave, slavery and climate change, the assumption behind this kind of conscientious objection protest politics is that the majority are sort of asleep at the wheel, that most people know this is wrong, that slavery is wrong. Not everyone, there will be champions of slavery, there'll be people who think it's wonderful, but most ordinary human beings recognise it's wrong in that I think most people recognise that climate change unchecked is a disaster. But it's really hard to do anything about it. And the, the path of least resistance is to be aware that in an ideal world, we would do something about it. But it's too complicated. It's too difficult. It's too dangerous. You know, doing something about slavery might lead to a civil war. Doing something about climate change might lead to the collapse of our economic systems. So we park it. But the idea of this form of civil disobedience is to wake people up to the thing that they know is wrong. And in the case of slavery and in the case of climate, to me, that is consistent with the evidence. On the case of climate, most people do recognize the seriousness of the challenge, but they find it very hard, I include myself in this, to know what to do about it, which is why I think this kind of protest is potentially, as well as being incredibly annoying to most people, galvanizing. It is not true that the majority think that vaccines are wrong. Most people think that vaccination is a good thing. And most people are very comfortable with government mandating vaccination. It is a minority pursuit. And in that sense, this form of politics in the anti-vax cause is unlikely to be effective or indeed to make sense in the ways that I think Thoreau's argument does make sense in relation to slavery and climate. And that's not me saying, I'm against slavery, I'm against climate change, but I'm pro-vaccine, so I'm, I'm adding my moral judgments to this. That's me saying, on these kinds of questions, take climate and vaccines, there is clearly a difference 
between what you might call majority opinion on these two questions. It's not like the majority are in favour of doing something about climate change, except in the most general terms, but they know it's a bad thing. And the majority does not think that vaccination is a bad thing. Catherine Church has a comment which also serves as a question about Virginia Woolf. In your discussion of A Room of One's Own, you didn't mention the question of having or not having children and what it means for possessing the space and financial capacity to write. What does it mean for Woolf's argument? Yes, I'm conscious I didn't discuss it. it. It's not a big part of her argument. It's not the central theme, but it's certainly there. It's there in the background and it's it's touched on explicitly in one or two places. So in her imagined life of Judith Shakespeare, the, the female Shakespeare, Shakespeare's sister, Part of what would make it impossible to be Shakespeare as a woman at that time is the expectation to have children. It is an absolutely massive constraint, an overwhelming constraint. It's why Shakespeare's sister would essentially have been trapped. Even if refusing to have children, the refusal to have children would itself be such an affront that it would constrain social possibility. It's also true that the women writers that Wolf holds up as examples of people in an earlier age who did manage to to break free from constraint were all childless. So Jane Austen had no children, Charlotte Bronte had no children and, and died during her first pregnancy of, I believe, what is thought to have been tuberculosis, which seems to be the universal killer in the story I've been telling, but is also it was clearly also the pregnancy that partly killed her. And George Eliot had no children, and Virginia Woolf had no children. So it's it's a story of women without children, though she doesn't make much of that. No question her argument applies to this too, in the sense that Woolf is pretty clear, I think, that the ability to choose whether or not to have children is a not a sufficient but a necessary condition of the ability to lead a writer's life on comparable terms to men. And so that, in the absence of that freedom, that basic freedom, the constraint will be overwhelming. But also the positive freedoms that are needed, that is enough money and enough physical space to write, hold for women who have children as much or more than women who don't. So women with children need money in order to be able to write because otherwise life becomes impossible, but also need space. They need a room of their own and a door that can be shut. And in, in much of you know, the writing about this question, you know, that's always thought to be one of the things that is hardest. Men are maybe better at shutting the door. There's a sort of selfishness of the male writer, at least in the telling of many of these histories of writing over the years, that suggests that simply having the room is not enough. But another way to put it is the thing that she doesn't talk about so much. There's money and there's space, but there's also time. I mean, time is almost the, the background consideration for all of this. You need the time to write. Money buys you the time. Physical space creates the time. But the challenge of creating that time with young children, particularly for women, is, of course, huge. And so though Wolf doesn't discuss it, it's a central part of any application of this argument. But I want to say one other thing in response to this question, because it also made me think of what's perhaps the most celebrated line in 20th century writing about what having children does to a writer's prospects or the ability to write. A line that I've always been aware of, but have never really 
tracked back where it came from. So it's Cyril Connolly who famously said of the writer's life and the prospect of writing great books, I quote, there is no more sombre enemy of good art than the pram in the hallway. And I just found myself thinking, didn't he write that at roughly the same time as Virginia Woolf? Actually, it was 10 years later. So it was 19, roughly a decade later, 1938, in his book, Enemies of Promise, which is not a book I'd ever read. So I thought, oh, I'll go and look at it. And is he, is he talking about women here? Is he, you know, is he talking about women and men? What is he actually saying? And I was pretty astonished to find, first of all, that in that book, Cyril Connolly is not talking about women at all. So he's only talking about men, amazingly, <laughs> that the, the enemy of great art is the pram in the hallway for male writers. And it's in this extraordinary and frankly sort of weird account of the writer's life in which he says one of the great challenges for male writers, and Wolf would hear everything that's wrong with this the second it's said. So I'm conscious of this. You know, this is Connolly talking. This is definitely not me talking. One of the you know, challenges of the male writer's life is how to write about women, how to understand women and write about them. And there's this terrible trade-off for men because either you marry women and have children. And so that means you can write about women because at least you'll understand them, but then the children will get in the way. Or, and he says this is particularly true of gay writers, he thinks, you don't marry and you don't have children. So you have the freedom, but that means that you won't understand women. So you won't be able to write about women. The many absurdities of that include the assumption that married men understand women and are allowed to write about them. Um, and he gives examples like Tolstoy and unmarried men get women wrong. I mean, it's just farcically crass it's weird that this sentence which is so celebrated comes from a really terrible book also oddly a book which is mainly about Connolly's frustration as someone who went both to the same prep school and the same posh school Eton as George Orwell a year behind Orwell sort of his obsession with George Orwell and how annoying it is that George Orwell is a better writer than he is it's a terrible book I think the enemies of promise. But there's one other thing about it that struck me. This is the end of my answer to this question. I realise I've digressed here, which is that what Connolly is interested in is the conditions under which a male writer can stand out from the crowd and be the great one. And the book in ostensibly is about Connolly's own supposed self-understanding of his failure to achieve that, the reasons why he never became the great one. And of course, Orwell was to become one of the great ones. So how do men the very, very few who become the the legends, how do they do it? And he says in that book, you know, don't take money for your writing and don't become a hack and don't go and work in advertising, don't be a journalist, don't take advantage of modern life and the way it allows you to write. Cut yourself off, be remote, don't have children, you know, live the artistic life so that you have the chance of being the great one. And Virginia Woolf in her thing says... Women need the opportunity to do the things that Connolly says writers shouldn't do. You need to have your 500 a year and write. You need to have the opportunity to do hack work. You need to be employed as a writer. Women should be journalists. Women should be allowed to be you know, advertising copywriters. Women should be able to do all the things that men do in writing. Because writing is essentially, Wolf says, I think, a collective enterprise. And having lots and lots of women writing in lots and lots of different ways about lots and lots of different aspects of experience creates the conditions under which 
great women writers can emerge. So Connolly's assumption is that greatness comes from cutting yourself off from the mass of writing. And Wolfe thinks that greatness in writing builds on the collective experience of lots of people like you writing, some well, some badly, but you're all part of the same thing. That is a very, very different kind of argument. So it's a room of one's own amongst a collection of other rooms of... Yeah, whereas Connolly, it's you shut the door. Yeah, I'm not going to be doing a future episode. Well, maybe, if I don't think on Enemies of Promise. It's interesting to read a book that's well-known and often cited and really bad. Okay, we've had a large number of questions about hypocrisy, which was a theme of several of the talks. Harriet Steele has asked specifically about Orwell and Baldwin and some different ways of thinking about hypocrisy. Orwell defends a version of British hypocrisy, which is about keeping up appearances and preventing the worst from happening. But Baldwin describes a society that also looks hypocritical. America talks up its freedom, but denies basic rights to many of its own citizens. So what's the difference there? Why is British hypocrisy good and American hypocrisy is bad? Yeah, it's a, another great question and not an easy one to answer. And it's true so when Orwell writes about Englishness, I, I mean, he was really thinking of English hypocrisy. I mean, I think this is where you can separate out England, maybe, you know, like, it's not Scottish hypocrisy, it's specifically English hypocrisy. And it's the known as the English vice, it's, you know, the rest of the world know the English for being hypocrites. And I think that's probably now that mantle has passed on to America, in that the rest of the world often thinks of America as the great hypocritical nation, the the champions of freedom, you know, the the shining light on the hill, but actually imperial, exploitative, you know, capitalist, corrupt, all that. There is definitely a 21st century version of what Orwell is talking about in relation to Britain in the 20th century applied to America. So yeah, these are two hypocritical societies. And yet, it doesn't feel like Orwell's defense of hypocrisy is going to do any good in relation to what Baldwin is talking about. I don't think it's going to make any sense to say of the American South, well, at least it's hypocritical, not least because actually it's not hypocritical. You know, that That's one of the things it has in common, as I said in that talk, with fascism. There's not that much pretense. It just is sincerely racist. And it's, you know, the racial hierarchy is not hidden in the way that Orwell is talking about English society as people whose instincts might well be pretty, from Orwell's point of view, reprehensible. But they have to pretend to certain kinds of decencies. So the, the English idea of the rule of law, the people who are enacting it are instinctively partisan and corrupt, but they, they make the pretense of certain principles of fairness. So I think the answer to this is the, the difference in Orwell's terms between the two versions of English hypocrisy. So there's internal and external. This is going to sound a bit abstract, but I hope it makes sense. Or to put it another way, there's domestic and imperial hypocrisy. So the domestic hypocrisy is the sort of hypocrisy of English democratic life, which is, Orwell thinks, you know, not just hierarchical, but in its way, oppressive and, and can be quite cruel and structured around class. And yet it has these principles baked into it that somehow stop it from degrading completely, he thinks. But imperial hypocrisy for Orwell is just unacceptable. 
because it's close to the edge of not being hypocrisy at all. So Britain overseas, the British Empire, which, as he says, most British people just don't think about. But when you encounter it close up, as he did in Burma, and you see it for what it is, it's kind of unabashed cruelty in its way. And the hypocrisy there is a country that talks of itself as a bastion of freedom and, and the rule of law, not doing it in a half-hearted way, but not doing it at all. You know, tr Treating the people over whom it ruled while talking the language of the rule of law as subjects to rules over which they have no say at all and in which they are simply the victims. And that's closer to the American South. Another way to put it is it's the difference between personal hypocrisy and institutional hypocrisy. So all I think is talking about the personal hypocrisy of the English, these, these terrible people like Chamberlain and Halifax, who somehow nonetheless can't sell the country out completely because they have a sense of honour. So they're deep hypocrites, but it saves them versus a whole society or an institutional arrangement, which is hypocritical. An example of that would be the American Constitution, the original American Constitution, which talked up you know, the, the freedoms that were in the Declaration of Independence and said that slaves were three-fifths of a human being. And the word hypocrisy doesn't seem adequate for that. You know, it, This is a double standard for sure, but you don't want to say, well, that's, that's hypocritical. It, that's just, I don't know what the word for it is. That is just contradictory. It's, it's unsustainable. It's it's wrong. Maybe the word for that is that it's wrong. Well, it's, it's cruelty. Thinking of your previous history of ideas on Judith Schlar, it feels to me that there's a sort of point at which that hypocrisy just becomes outright cruelty. And yeah. It's... And, that, and you could say that's the other difference here. And it's the difference between the American North and the American South. If you apply some of those distinctions, you could say the American North is hypocritical in the sense that there are these double standards at work it's complicit in the regime of the South. It thinks itself better than it really is. It doesn't apply its own standards consistently. But nonetheless, as Baldwin more or less says before he encountered Southern America in the North, the North, in all of its racism, nonetheless had offered certain protections, hypocritical protections, but because people couldn't quite go the full way to degradation. So the North is hypocritical, the South isn't hypocritical. The South is just cruel. And it does connect, and I'll just make one more connection here, to that tradition of civil disobedience and Thoreau, because the Martin Luther King version of that, which was to, to protest, to put bodies on the line in the South, in order to speak not to the South, because the South was beyond being spoken to, but to the North, to people in the North, to say, in some part of yourselves, you know this is wrong. You're hypocrites. You know it's wrong, but you, you live as though you're decent people. And this, this violence that you're seeing meted out on us, this cruelty, dogs and sticks and water cannon, look, look at this cruelty. You can't completely distance yourself from it. You, you are the people of the double standards. You're allowing this cruelty while thinking it's not you. And so it's using the hypocrisy. And I think Gandhi too, actually, with the British Empire, was trying to use the hypocrisy to say, you can't live like this with these double standards. If you are going to be the people you claim you are, and yet allow this to happen, sticks and dogs and violence being meted out in your name against us, it's no longer sustainable. So there is a way, I think, that these do connect. But it's not easy, I think, to separate them out. And the other thing to say about hypocrisy is everyone hates it. So once you start nuancing this hypocrisy is okay, this hypocrisy is not. You just sound like a sort of, you know, 
ridiculous intellectual. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. David Isaacs has a question that comes out of the episode on Simone Vile. It is hard to consider Vile's politics without rooting it in her theology, but it is generally a truism among contemporary politicians that faith is a private matter and has no place in the public realm. What are we to make of this division? Is it sustainable? Yeah, I mean, Vile really stands out here. So Vile's faith, faith, her theology is so central and it does make her different i think from some of the others i've talked about she it's it's catholic faith as well montaigne was a catholic but when you read montaigne anyone who reads montaigne it's one of the reasons why he still appeals and is so modern you don't feel that you're drowning in his catholicism the opposite you feel like you're being given a free license to to pick what you want with simone Weil, you're not being given a license to take this bit or that bit it there's a there's an all or nothing quality to her thought, which makes it so rare. And I think that's the reason why it's lasted, but it's lasted because it's it's really difficult from a contemporary, somewhat secular sensibility to just to respond to it. But the question isn't about that. As I understand, it, it's sort of about contemporary politics. And, and there's a, a difference that's often remarked on between the US and the UK on this. Um, British politicians do think that faith is not to be brought into the public domain, much less so in the United States. I I mean, I'm aware that Rishi Sunak is, I think he is a devout Hindu, but he doesn't. And, and occasionally it's reported on in the sense that journalists report on things that he's done where this is part of the story, but it's not part of his public presentation at all. It's certainly not part of his appeal to voters. Uh, Tony Blair, famously, was told by Alistair Campbell not to go down that road at all, especially when Blair was flirting with Catholicism. Whereas in the United States, and we talked about this a bit on the episode where we talked about the history of the Republican Party, it's this odd thing that that separation initially existed to keep Catholicism out. That was the idea. You know, the thought that the thing that was thought to be dangerous in the public realm was Catholicism because. The traditional view was it meant you were serving two masters, the Pope as well as your your national electorate in the American case. And yet, by some weird route, it's come back in. And by an even weirder route, it's come back in through the Supreme Court, where professions of faith are part of what gets people on, on the court, that they, they can be trusted, they can be relied on. So I don't think it's straightforward anymore that in modern public life, faith is a private matter and the public domain has to be kept safe from it. I think that line has always been blurred and it's blurrier than ever. And the story of how Catholicism went from being the thing to keep out to to being the marker of authenticity in aspects of American politics is a version of that. But I would say I think it's as that. So when it comes back in, in contemporary politics... It is more as a marker of authenticity rather than as a theology. 
certainly not a Simone Weil style theology. And Simone Weil's theology is so demanding that it doesn't really have a application in American politics. I don't know who the vile the vile party would be. It just doesn't make sense. But you know, where religion is there as a as an asset in public life, I think it's because what people want is a a marker, a signifier of authenticity, and religion can serve that purpose. But it doesn't just have to be religion. So it can be political faith. You know, Jeremy Corbyn Part of his appeal, he was he's not a religious figure. I mean, I know some of it, you know, it's sort of, he had a saintly quality, but it's not like he's pushing Christianity at people. But part of the appeal of politicians like Corbyn or, or Bernie Sanders in the US is that they kept the faith, right, for, for 30, 40 years. And without it being in any way religious, it's deeply secular. It's also, it has echoes of, what people want is the signifier of authenticity. You hold these beliefs and you hold them because you are, you know, they're part of who you are. And I think that's the way that religion comes back in. But for that reason, I don't think it comes back in as theology. I think it comes back in as authenticity. In in terms of that question of whether it's sustainable, are those moments at which it kind of is brought up, especially in British politics, I'm thinking of Kate Forbes, I'm thinking of Tim Farron, even moments where it sort of comes to the surface is that a sign of its the private public nature of it in politics being unsustainable because it suddenly bursts out at moments when politicians desperately don't want it to? Yeah, and I think actually so that answer I gave was mainly about America. I don't think in Britain yet we've reached the point where in the search for authenticity, for many people, religion is a good proxy or marker for that. And yeah, when it does burst out, it's almost always as a problem. And, and usually, so in, in the case of those two one SNP, one Liberal Democrat, it's at odds with the progressive values of their party because these tend to be around questions of abortion or, or gay marriage and so on. Um, so then authenticity won't save you. I mean, people tried to save Kate Forbes for precisely that reason by saying, no, isn't this what we're hankering for in politics? Someone who believes what they say. And the response was, yeah, but not that. <laughs> you know, we want people who believe what they say, but not that. Likewise, um, Tim Farron, and actually likewise, Tony Blair, in a way. Tony Blair was a politician of sincere beliefs. And some of those sincere beliefs he did really push. You know, he he really believed the Iraq war was a good idea. And you know, one of the lines he used to use was, you know, it's worse than you think. I actually believe it. He used to say, this isn't me being devious and manipulative or the pawn of George W. Bush or whatever it is. You know, I actually believe this stuff. I believe in spreading democracy. I believe in using military force to make the world a better place. But he never did that with, with the religion. He didn't say, and I also... You know, it's it's inspired by my my understanding and indeed faith in certain religious principles. He didn't do that, so I think yeah, Britain and America are still different in that respect, for sure. But how long that will last, I don't know. Religion, religion's not going away. So we've had some questions about Sontag and interpretation. David Garcia wants to know whether it's the interpretive space created by the arts that makes tyrants afraid of artistic freedom. Should we be in favour of interpretation for that reason? As in, should we be supportive of it because it flies in the face of tyrants? So yes, I think that this question I think I can answer is a yes or no question, yes. And I think Sontag's argument is an argument 
that applies under conditions of freedom. So I think she's against interpretation in an American context where people are pretty much free to interpret things how they would like. And in that context, there's too much of it. It's overwhelming. It becomes increasingly vapid. And she wants to go back to form because she thinks she's in a, a world, an Amelia, sort of intellectual, academic, cultural, critical Amelia, which is drowning in interpretation. I'm pretty sure Sontag herself, who was very interested in art under conditions of oppression and indeed did some pretty heroic things herself in her life, including putting on Waiting for Godot in Sarajevo under siege, that where that freedom is taken away, then of course you shouldn't be against interpretation because interpretation is one of the markers of freedom. So under tyrannical rule, you know, under aspects of Soviet rule, where you're not free to interpret things how you would like. Interpretation is the essential value because you need to be able to explore different possible meanings in order to resist oppression. And I don't think there's anything in, unless I've misread it, in Sontag's essay that suggests you should be against interpretation when interpretation is banned. <laughs> I think when interpretation is banned, you should be for interpretation. She's against interpretation when there are no limits on interpretation, because then it's a free-for-all. And when it's a free-for-all, particularly at the sort of academic, cultural, critical end of the modern sort of culture industry, there just will be too much of it. And it becomes the easy option and it becomes increasingly empty and, and meaningless. So I think there's a pretty sharp distinction here. Yes, tyrants are against art because art invites interpretation and tyrants are against interpretation. Sontag is not against interpretation because she's a tyrant. She's against interpretation because she thought 1960s America was drowning in it. There is a difference for sure. Another question from Diana Geddes asks whether applying Sontag's argument to politics doesn't just make it all about the surface, doesn't just make it a surface level argument. As Diana puts it, Brittle, shiny, promising, hollow. Yeah, which is a pretty great phrase. So I think the so a short answer here is I think the the most recent episode, the one about Joan Didion, is partly a sort of answer to this. So it, it is about what happens when you have a world where it's it's all surface and then all meaning and sort of formless in a way. And Didion thought, you know, late sixties America was a bit like that. And as I say in that episode it really speaks to now as well, that that feeling that there are a million stories and no true ones. And it's all become, yeah, shiny in that way, but hollow. So yes, a, a politics which is all about the shiny surface is one, going to be hollow, but two, going to invite endless interpretations. <laughs> if, if everything is superficial, it gives license to the interpreters to all the time be searching for the deeper meaning. So it's also... You, you get the worst of both worlds on, in that version. And I do think contemporary politics probably is a bit like that. I think what I was trying to suggest is there is something else, which is not just surface and not just deeper meaning, but actual form. I mean, the actual structure of things, which isn't superficial. You know, electoral systems are not superficial. Electoral de systems determine our world. You don't get Trump without the American electoral system. So that's not a shiny superficial fact, but that is form not content. And what I was trying to suggest is that actually in this world, I think as described by Diana, where everything is either the, the shiny surface or the multiple competing deeper interpretations, the thing that we have forgotten about is form, not surface, 
not deeper meaning, but form. And form is not superficial. It's not hollow. It's not empty. You, know, you, can, you can study politics and say the way it's been structured actually determines outcomes. That was all I was saying. We should spend more time thinking about that. Is this an invitation to revisit the British electoral system with something like proportional representation? So, yeah, it is, actually. But, of course, the trouble with that is that sounds really boring. So the other thing about, particularly in politics, I think, but sometimes in art too, is that focus on form is less interesting or exciting than either the shiny surface or the search for deeper meaning. You know, it's nerdy, it's wonky, it's you know, proportional representation. I've given talks on proportional representation and you, you know, it's really hard to keep people awake, never mind engaged. So it is, but the challenge is to persuade people that it matters. And yeah, electoral reform is the least two least sexy words in the British political lexicon. And and when it's attempted, it always fails. But its constant failure is one of the reasons we have the politics that we do. You know, we we don't change the way we do politics. We just constantly change the people and the deeper meaning. And that's why increasingly people find it futile. This is an aside that we just did, but the first election I ever voted in was the AV vote. Yes. Was yeah. That was <laughs> an introduction to how little introduction anyone to, cared I'm guessing about an introduction to what it's like to not just lose, but to yes, be crushed. To be crushed badly. <laughs> yeah. First of many. Um, okay. <laughs> now to some of the more, let's move on now to some of the more general questions. The first one comes out of the episode on Orwell, but it's not just about Orwell. Luck Swallows Everything wants to know if you can be a genuinely serious political thinker and also align yourself comfortably with a particular political party. Well, I know Simone Viles answered that question. So Simone Viles thought you couldn't even, never mind a serious political thinker, she thought you couldn't be a serious person if you aligned yourself with a political party. You know, she's the absolute purest of the anti-party strand which runs through a lot of modern political thought. So one of the essays that I thought about doing but in the end chose a different one is by Hume. Hume has an essay against political parties or about political parties but sort of what's so ridiculous about them and how it's so ridiculous that supposedly serious human beings will align themselves in these partisan ways so that they don't just give up their judgment but they form alliances that if they took a step back they would know are ridiculous and so one of his arguments is that one glue that holds political parties together is human beings' affection for human beings they don't know and have never met, i.e. the leaders of their parties. And they become incredibly passionate and partisan and defensive about people, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, whoever it is, that they basically know nothing about and might not like or respect if they knew them. And yet, you know, they'll go to the wire to defend these people. And he just says it's ridiculous. So philosophers have often thought political parties are completely ridiculous and you can't, you can't be a, a serious thinker or someone who uses intellectual discretion if you align yourself with a party. So I don't agree with that because the, the, the point about political parties is they're not just sort of designed to stop people thinking. They're practical devices in a very busy world to give people a sort of shortcut or a shorthand for broadly speaking, positions that they haven't got the time to think through for themselves and in a business politics that they're not, for the most part, doing for themselves. They've got to leave it up to the professionals and parties are there to organise positions and policies and programmes in a way that are accessible to people without them having to think it through. 
And that is an incredibly useful function. And it's really hard because no one's worked out how to do it, to imagine democracy without it. Democracy becomes too demanding without political parties. And this service has to be available for everyone. Like philosophers need it too. It's not like, I mean, David Hume actually was himself pretty partisan on the political issues of the day. He needed the shorthands. He didn't philosophize his way to all of these things. You read Hume and some of it is this cutting, sharp, skeptical, think for yourself philosophy, but a lot of it just reads like prejudice. Because he's human, like everyone's human, philosophers are human. And parties serve that purpose for everyone. So I think, yeah, of course, you can, you people can compartmentalize themselves. Of course, you can in a single person or a single life, have aspects of your life where you are free from party affiliation in something that you do. And it could be philosophy, it could even be writing about politics. And at the same time, you value the shortcut and the shorthand of a party affiliation, which allows you at least to be in the right ballpark for your own political preferences and to take part. And it's, you know, Simone Weil's argument is just way too much that we have to reject all this. It's it's profoundly idealistic and utopian. Parties are essential. And philosophers who, it's fine for philosophers to write about what's wrong with them. But philosophers who just say they have to be excluded from the way we do politics are asking for something that's unrealistic. I don't think you can be a serious political thinker if you're also a complete party hack or apparatchik. That's a different kind of job. That's a valuable job. But it doesn't, on the whole, go along with interesting political thought, although there are exceptions to this. You know, I genuinely think that, although actually he's trying, currently trying to destroy the Conservative Party, but for a while he was he was serving the Conservative Party, Dominic Cummings. And even while he was conserving the Conservative Party, he was among the most interesting writers out there about politics. You know, there are rare people who can really compartmentalise. But even Cummings now says you can't, he can't, you know, he's got to destroy the Conservative Party. And as he says, salt the ground with earth. So, you, you I mean, maybe, you know, rare people can, can lead lives that include both, but probably you know, an apparatchik or a real ideologue or a you know a propagandist, which parties need, aren't going to be the most interesting political thinkers. But I'm definitely I would not be a purist on the question of party affiliation and being interesting about politics because human beings, apart from anything else, can lead double lives and be a bit hypocritical. Comes back to the hypocrisy again. Always does. Mike Edwards asks a general question, which is also related to the specific question we asked earlier about Virginia Woolf. He wants to know how far being the sort of essayist that gets included in this series, in your series, is a mark of privilege in the sense that these writers all had advantages of social status or upbringing or education or contacts. Who or where are the genuinely disadvantaged people who have written brilliant essays on the human condition? Virginia Woolf does write about this in A Room of One's Own. So she doesn't just write about the disadvantages that women face. She also writes about, she lists the great male writers and says, you have to notice that they are all privileged, almost all. There are always exceptions, but the general run of it is that these people had all sorts of advantages, some of wealth, some of connections, and and all, almost all of them of education. And of in in that list, I think education is the key one here, and and it was it was the privilege that Orwell, for instance, thought was the one that you know this is non negotiable, right? Education has to be as widely available as possible. That's why I thought all those schools should be abolished that never were abolished. Education probably is the one that 
certainly for the essay, because the essay is a, you know, it's a sort of, it is an educated form of writing. It, it's the thing that, that we all do at school, right? That's, you know, I, I began the Montaigne episode with this. this. This is what an essay is. It's sort of become a bit corrupted into this rather formulaic thing, but it is still, it's intimately tied to the experience of education. And so to be an essayist is probably the sort of thing you're only going to want to do, actually, if you have some educational connection to it. And, you know, in this series, I, I don't know how to answer the question generally. I'm sure there are lots of exceptions. And maybe in future series, we'll come on to this. But in this series, Baldwin is the one who stands out. Certainly more disadvantaged than the others, more disadvantaged than Virginia Woolf or Susan Sontag or Joan Didion or George Orwell. Certainly more disadvantaged than Montaigne. But though he writes about the many disadvantages that he faced, education was key to his story too. And part of what's so moving about Notes of a Native Son is, is his description of the fight with his father. So his father also sees education as key, but his father is terrified of falling into the hands of white educationalists in the case of his son. And somehow Baldwin negotiates it so that he does manage some of that advantage too by playing off his father's fears against his father's desire to control him. But Baldwin did also go, he went to a good school, a seriously good high school. I think it was called the DeWitt Clinton High School in New York. I looked it up just now. An amazing list of alumni. I mean, an astonishing, many of them artists, Jewish artists, black American artists, but also writers, you know, astonishing, actually, sort of litany of 20th century greats. And without that, I don't know if you want to call it an advantage, but without that luck to get into that school, would Baldwin have ended up an essayist? He, I mean, he might have ended up a million different things, but an essayist? I think the essay, and this may be one of the limitations of the essay as a form of writing, is that you don't need all the privileges, but some aspect of the privilege of education is probably a precondition of thinking that this is the way you want to express yourself. And for that reason, maybe it is a limited form compared to poetry or theatre or painting. You can be a great painter without having gone to art school. Dee Withers has a short, provocative question. Which essayist would we prefer to put into number 10? I mean, basically none of them, obviously. Um, and it's the thought of some of them is terrifying. I mean, Simone Weil or whoever. Uh, I'm going to give a short answer to this, which is the only one who sort of appeals in that context to me anyway is Montaigne, partly because he's the only one who actually was a politician. And you know, the, the stories about him were that he was quite a good mayor in a terribly difficult time because he was, you know, and I'm in giving this answer, I'm, I'm reading something about the miserable central dullness of my political outlook. He, Montaigne, kind of thought that his job was just to do no harm and try and you know make sure that in a time where terrible, terrible things were happening, he didn't use his power to make the world a worse place, which is a pretty minimal ambition for politics. But also I find quite appealing. But the other thing I find appealing about Montaigne is he didn't want to do it. I mean, there's something about, you know, there are the people, and we can think of them recently, who've occupied Number 10 Downing Street, who really wanted to do it all their lives. And it would be nice to have someone in Downing Street who was a really reluctant occupant of Downing Street. And certainly, I think in the case of Montaigne, that would be true. I think it's pretty unrealistic now to get to the top in a modern democratic state reluctantly. It used to happen a bit. I mean, even American presidents used to sort of be drafted against their will. 
I can't think of anyone running for president in America at the moment who isn't gagging for it. So uh, my answer to that question is I want the one who A, did it, B, had no ambitions for it except not to make the world a worse place and C, wish that he didn't. That's who I'd like to see in number 10. And so finally, we've had lots of comments from listeners asking about the choice of essays and the choice of essayists. Some asking whether there shouldn't be more essays from around the world and from other cultures and different traditions, and also asking whether great essays only really stand out in hindsight. How do you choose? And are you going to talk about some more recent essays? Yeah, so these are obviously really serious questions. I'm, I'm conscious this is a pretty partial selection, so calling them the great essays and the great essayists. It's not just it's very Western, it's very English-speaking, you know, a couple of French people. You know, no Germans, I think. I'm going to do Umberto Eco a bit later. But, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty narrow. It's actually quite American-focused. Uh, so not just Western, not just English-speaking, actually pretty much focused on America. And I'm definitely not suggesting there's anything definitive about this. And we've had lots of really interesting suggestions for future series and future episodes. And I'm going to think a lot about that. And, you know, I'd definitely like to do one that was broader. For this series in particular, I was partly motivated by a desire to kind of find connections between these essays. So not something as limited as finding people who were responding to earlier ones. It's it's looser than that. But these essays are close enough together, some of them, particularly, say, the 20th century ones. It's possible to tell a story where there is an overarching story as well as a back and forth between some of these, you know, the theme of hypocrisy coming up, some of the ways in which these writers seem to be responding to similar prompts and also within the essay form exploring it in ways that are different but you can see the connection so I've had that theme that reading these essays is like being taken on a journey because I start with Montaigne so you don't have to start with Montaigne it's not like he really invented the essay I'm pretty sure if I know that there was an essay writing tradition in China which is way older than anything in Europe it's not like Europe invented this thing but there is a version of the essay which does start with Montaigne which is this modern personal reflective journey not of discovery but of adventure that in different ways some of these essays probably actually with the exception of Hume uh, echo and so I wanted to come up with a set of essays that that do that but I, I am I couldn't be more conscious that it's for that reason, rather exclusive. And I'm hoping definitely to do lots more of these and, and to broaden it out. You know, it's a stretch for me. I mean, this has been a stretch for me, but to broaden it out. But that's part of what's, I think, exciting about these kinds of podcasts and the interactions that we get with listeners, which are really great, actually. I mean, incredibly valuable for me. On the second thing, which is where are the more recent essays? So I, we are going to do more recent ones. So th this summer season has been the 20th century and actually the middle of the 20th century, it runs from, what, 1928 to 1979. So it's just part of the 20th century. But there are a few more to complete this series about essays. Umberto Eco, I'm going to talk uh, next time, next time we do one of these about David Foster Wallace, Tanahesi Coates, and, and finish with a contemporary essay. Maybe I haven't quite decided yet. There are more good essays now than ever, right? When Montaigne, so when Montaigne was writing, if you wanted to find a good essay, it's quite easy because there's just Montaigne. So you just pick your favourite Montaigne essay. 
now, you know, I, I started looking at collections, best essays of 2022, best essays of 2021. There are an unbelievable number of good essays. I mean, there are an unbelievable number. It's impossible to choose now from all over the world and all sorts of different kinds of essay writing. Part of the reason this series is structured the way it is, is, is it's easier to pick the earlier ones because there are fewer of them to choose from. And it gets harder the closer you get to the present. So it's not, I'm saying, all the great essays of the old ones. It's just much harder to pick. There are more good essays now than there used to be, for sure. I mean, the essay essay writing is exploding. It's unbelievable the number of venues, online publications, in which people are publishing amazing essays. And it's also really striking how the essay is a still a vibrant form of writing. And I'll say this here, you know, the London Review of Books is one. It's not the only one, but it is one. The New Yorker is another, where essay writing is as good as it's ever been. Maybe it's better because it's more diverse. So definitely not saying it ends with the 20th century or it's only 50 years afterwards. But it is hard. I'm not, it's harder to know which the great ones are, not because there aren't any great ones, but because there are so many great ones. I'm finding it hard to choose the last one. When I looked at those best essays of 2022, it's really hard to pick because there are lots of really, really good ones. I don't know which are the ones that will be legendary like A Room of One's Own in 50 years' time, but it could be one of hundreds. So I hope this series hasn't given the impression that I think that you have to be old to be interesting when it comes to essay writing. Thank you, Ben, and thank you to everyone who, who gave us questions. I really enjoyed that. I don't know if I answered them, but I really enjoyed it. We're going to be back in our regular slot on Thursday this week, and I'm going to be talking there to Leah Ippi about the themes in my new book. I've got a book out called The Handover. It's about the history of artificial intelligence and of modern politics, and Leah is going to be questioning me on that. Please join us then. Thank you again for all your questions. My name is David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.